morning. Man, it's a great joy to be here. A little bit about myself. My name is John. For those of you guys who don't know me, um, I have already been mentioned today that I am the new assistant pastor here at Mercy Hill. Um, yeah, it's been a, it hasn't been a long time coming, but especially nowadays, especially with the pandemic, everything seems to be a lot longer than it actually is. My, my father is a minister. Um, he has been for some time. And, and in high school, knowing that, before I was saved, I told myself one of my life goals was that I would never, ever, in a million years, be a pastor. And here I stand. You know, God can be funny like that sometimes. Not so much the irony. And I don't know if funny is the right word. But God does use the things that we wouldn't think to use, situations and people that we would never think God uses to bring about His glory and His ministry and His gospel to those who need it. He uses the reluctant, such as me. He uses the downcast to weak. And as we are in this Mark series, we are very much in the thick of seeing the most despicable and the horrible things God's u- God uses to bring about the most beautiful hope that this world needs. 20 years, 20 years in the making has gotten me where I am now. And for some of you, I know you guys go through certain things, and it seems as though God doesn't answer your prayers. God doesn't answer your promises. And for others of us, He answers them overnight. Wherever you may be, I pray that you may continue to hold to his promises. Now, I held on to it. I didn't think this day would come, but now that it's here, I thought it would be more of a glorious moment for me, but I've never been more humbled in my life. And I've been, I haven't been more humbled before, not only because of where God has put me today, but also because of the hospitality and the love and the care and the welcoming of Mercy Hill. So before I begin with this sermon, I do ask on behalf of my family that you may keep me accountable, that you may not just see me as some green pastor or just simply receive me because, I don't know, I have some theological accolade, but I do honestly pray that you may show me and my family love by not only continuing to be hospitable to us, but also helping us as we continue to answer this call in ministry. And with that, I do have the privilege of preaching the word today on my first Sunday. So as we continue in the book of Mark, if you may turn with me to Mark chapter 15, and we'll continue our series in Mark chapter 15, verse 40 to 47. This is the word of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among who were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening, evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, 
Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he, had already, he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come before you once again as your people gathered to hear from your word. Father, we are so prone to scatter, not necessarily scatter to share this good news, but we are so prone to scatter and forget our identity, forget our hope in Jesus Christ. And Lord, because of that, we do not go forth with a message of love and hope, but rather we go forth with our own messages, living our own lives, trying to be our own lords. I pray, Father, as we submit to your word once again, help us to, to listen, help us to really be sensitive to what the Spirit is speaking to us through your word so that we may not leave this place unchanged. Help us not only to be convicted by your word, but more importantly, help us also to find grace and be comforted. Be with your people now as we listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Apostles' Creed is one of the oldest creeds or statements of faith in Christendom or Christian history. And I'm sure a lot of you guys know the Apostles' Creed by heart. And it is considered one of the oldest. And the reason why it's called the Apostles' Creed is that back in the 300s, the belief was that there's 12 statements of faith and each, each apostle contributed to each statement. Now, whether or not that's true, we do know that it is old. And the thing about the Apostles' Creed is that even though there are many denominations, there are many different faith traditions, the Apostles' Creed is one of those things that is common to a lot of different denominations. Whether we are Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, throughout history, the, uh, the Apostles' Creed is used in worship. And with these common beliefs, one of the things in the Apostles' Creed, I for one had overlooked, was specifically when it says Jesus was crucified, died, and buried. And I don't know about you, the buried part almost seems not as important, right? Because maybe, maybe, perhaps it's because it's surrounded by the two most pinnacle truths of the Christian faith, and that is Jesus' death and resurrection, so at first glance, we look at our story today, and it may be easy to overlook, but as we look into the story more deeply, hopefully we see the significance of this man named Joseph and the significance of his request and the work of burying Jesus, and in turn, perhaps maybe we can glean on a lesson that we can take away for ourselves today. 
So the significance, the significance of this story. Before I get into it, why don't we just take a step away from the Bible and just consider our own burial customs. Now, depending on, you know, your background, ethnicity, and your culture, it may differ, but what I'm used to and what you may be used to is that usually when a person dies, it's the family who takes care of their body. They have the responsibility. And in rare instances, if there is no family, it's the closest friends or those that knew the person well. But even if the person were to have died, whether through execution or whatever it may be, and they died because they did some sort of crime or criminal activity or whatever it may be to have brought shame to this person, even if the family may be reluctant because of the shame that this person brought to their family, even though they may be of reluctance, in our, in our day and age, we go and bury the dead. We honor them by giving them a proper burial. You see, the Jewish custom back then was no different. In fact, they did one better. They had a religious obligation, even to the corpse of a criminal, to give them a proper burial. It was in their religious tradition. So we may look at what Joseph is doing and saying, he's just, you know what, nothing special. This guy is just fulfilling a religious obligation. Right? But that's not true. How do we know that? There's a couple more details in the story that the text doesn't necessarily give to us right away. First, who is this Joseph? He's found nowhere else in the Bible except in the four Gospels and only in this story. And we know three things. First, his name is Joseph. Second, he's from Arimathea. And number three, he was a member of the council. Now, if you remember, as we've come along in the series, the council is significant because it's the council, the Sanhedrin. They are responsible for Jesus' death. They are the one who charged Jesus for blasphemy. They are the one who put Jesus to death. This guy is part of that council. A second detail is that Jesus, yes, was executed by the Jewish uh, community, but he was also executed under the authority of Rome. And the Roman tradition of burying the criminals was not nearly as nice as the Jewish. You see, for the Romans, it wasn't uncommon for them to leave criminals of particular crimes to hang on the cross and to rot and to be made an example. You see, Jesus... In verse 2 of chapter 5, we see that Jesus had claimed to be the king of the Jews. I grew up in Tanzania, or at least six years of my life. And in Tanzania, I noticed that whether you are the head position of an organization or, or a school or whatever it may be, of a company, I noticed that the head position's title is always chairman. It's, it's kind of weird. We don't really use that here, but it's chairman. And coming from America, I, I found that a little weird. So I asked one of the locals, how come you guys don't use the word president? And the local told me this. There is only one president. That's the president of the country. You see, Jesus, being, Jesus claiming to be the king of the Jews 
was a direct affront, was a direct statement of opposition and dissension, not only to Rome, but to the face of the one king that the Romans knew, and that was Caesar himself. And so to that sort of crime, Rome was not kind to criminals. They let them rot. They did not honor their bodies because they didn't deserve to be honored. And they left them to hang in order to deter others of the same sorts of crimes. So you see, with these two small details, one, Joseph being a member of the council, and two, requesting the body of a criminal, it was no small request. You see, he was putting himself on the chopping block himself by asking for Jesus' body. In fact, the Romans could have accused him to be a follower of this dissenter and this rebel. Right? This is exactly the reasons why the disciples themselves ran away, and they're nowhere to be seen, because they didn't want to be caught guilty of being a follower of Jesus. And not only that, it's no small request because the Jewish community could have taken away his sta- social status, potentially lost his spot in the council. Right? I don't know, the Bible doesn't say whether or not he had a family, but if he did, I'm sure he wouldn't be the only one that would have suffered by being caught asking for Jesus' body. So we ask ourselves, why would Joseph, a respected member of the council, risk so much and ask for Jesus' body? Now, in the other Gospels, there's a little bit more detail. And it tells us in Luke that he was not only a member of the council, but he disagreed to the killing of Jesus. And in Matthew and John's Gospel, it actually says that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. But I don't think that's the key to why he would risk so much for the body. I believe the key is found here in verse 43, where it says he was looking for the kingdom of God. Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. Now, we know, I, I know we've heard that phrase a lot. And you might be sitting there thinking, he's emphasizing king, kingdom of God. I still don't understand what would mot- how that would motivate him. So I'm going to make a little bit more sense of the kingdom of God. You know, our first thought of the kingdom of God, when we hear of kingdom, is that we're thinking, all right, kingdom, it's a land or a nation. Or maybe some of us think, when we think of kingdom, we think of the people that occupy the land, right? The subjects of that land. Now, the kingdom of God is such a big uh, topic in the Bible, so I don't necessarily have the time this morning to explain it all. But to be honest, I don't really have the wisdom to explain the breadth of it. So, in my research, I, I default and trust in someone else who does have the wisdom. And so I'll tell you what John Piper says, what the kingdom of God is. And he says in one word, in one word, the kingdom of God means God's reign. Reign or rule. One word, one word is reign or rule. That's what the kingdom of God is. Yes, it does entail a nation. Yes, it does entail a people. But more importantly, more specifically, the kingdom of God means God's reign. And it's not a military rule, right? That's what the disciples thought. And that's why when he died, they thought the military rule was over and they ran away. No, the kingdom of God or God's reign is a greater rule. It's a more eternal rule. It is not only a, a, a physical earthly rule, but it is an eternal and deep spiritual rule over all sin, death, brokenness, injustice of all sorts. 
not only what we see in this world with our eyes, and I'm sure in a horizontal sense, there is death and sin and injustice. You know, the last 18 months, we have seen it. But it's also the sin and brokenness vertically, right? So not the sin and brokenness that we have with one another as people in this world, but also the brokenness and sin that we have with God. And in fact, the sin and brokenness we have vertically is the reason for the brokenness that we have horizontally. See, God's kingdom or God's reign is to come and to overcome that sin, death, and brokenness. God's reign brings peace, restoration, completeness, right? There is no fear or anxiety. There's no more sense of, I wish I had this, or I wish my situation was like that. And the Hebrew word, there is a word for this, and that is shalom. And this is the first thing Jesus says when he comes back in Mark chapter 1. As soon as he comes into this ministry, it starts his ministry. The first thing he says is that the kingdom of God is here. You see, with the coming of Jesus, God's reign had come. God's reign over these things has now come. And shalom comes with Jesus. You see, the disciples ran because they thought the kingdom was over. And it makes sense. I mean, they seem more logical. How can there be a kingdom without a king? But the funny thing is, Joseph didn't lose hope. Now, the world may look at him and say, He's crazy, illogical, dumb, delusional, but that wasn't the case. You see, Joseph did not lose hope because for him, what was more certain than the dead body before him was that God fulfills his promises. For us, it's so easy to be swayed and convinced by the things that are right before our eyes. But you see, for Joseph, even the most apparent thing seemed more wrong or seemed more illogical, or he refused to believe that over believing that God did not fulfill his promises. It reminded me a lot of Abraham. As you guys know, Abraham was given a promise as well. Abraham was promised that he'd be the father of many nations. Now, in order to be a father of anything, you need to have a son. Abraham didn't have a son. And when he did receive a son, God asked for that son. And in Hebrews, it tells us that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. Where in our eyes, would say, well, there goes the promise. But Hebrews tells us that Abraham, just like Joseph here, had the faith that, yeah, it may not seem logical to me, but what I am most certain about, more so than giving up my son, more so than for Joseph seeing the dead body of my king, was that God's kingdom, God's promise is for sure. And that is why Joseph risked so much for asking Jesus' body. You see, for Joseph... He had nothing to lose, and he had everything to gain. Everything in this life, 
even the good things, paled in comparison to what he would receive with the kingdom coming. How does that apply to us today? Well, for starters, we are here gathered because we collectively confess and trust in this promise. We trust in what God has promised for his church. Yes, Jesus died on the cross, and we believe that because of that, there is shalom between God and his people. And we also believe, when we come here to, uh, to confess, that in his resurrection, there is no longer sin and death that reign over in our lives, but now Jesus reigns in our lives. He is the king who watches over us, and he is the one that not only watches over our bodies, but also our eternal souls. But you see, sometimes, or I should say a lot of the times, we forget this truth. Unlike Joseph, we often see the difficult situations before our eyes, seemingly impossible situations. And instead of like Joseph, we're like the disciples. We see a situation and we're off running. And I'm sure many of us have different sorts of situations, different struggles. Some of us struggle with our health. Some of us struggle in our relationships. Some of, our, some of us struggles with the expectations that the world puts on us, maybe even what our family puts on us, whether it's students in school, right? The expectation of going to, getting good grades, the expectation of going to a good college, the expectation of getting married, having kids, having what the American dream is. All of us have these expectations or struggles that we struggle with. Some days are good, but a lot of the times it's very difficult for us. And it's so easy for us to see these situations and run. And maybe for some of us, our struggles are more internal than that. Maybe some of us, we struggle with a reoccurring sin that have been haunting us for decades, for years. And it almost seems as though no matter what we do, no matter how much we bring it to God, it seems like we can't shake this sin. It almost seems like impossible and we fall into despair. Not only that, in this day and age, especially with the recent COVID situation, you know, all of us, in varying degrees, we, we are struggling through it, right? Now with the whole Delta, I don't mean to scare anyone here, but recently I also heard of another one called the Lambda. I'm sure there's going to be more. I'm sure there's going to be so many that we're not going to keep, uh, keep track of it. But also, even with the, the, the state in Afghanistan, there's wars, rumors of wars, right? There's natural disasters happening in Haiti. People are dying all over the world. Right? There's a situation that we just prayed for in New Orleans as they're bracing for that. And it's not just this past 18 months that we are now seeing the devastations of sin and suffering of our lives. This has happened since as far as we can remember. It's so easy for us to see these things and be convinced of the things that we see in front of us and fall into despair. And it's so easy for us to ask Will it get any better? Or even more importantly, we may even doubt and say, how can God fulfill his promises even despite our situations? 
not only does trusting in God's promises lead us to despair, but for, for, for some of us, many of us, myself included, it could also lead us to pride. You see, when we are not like Joseph and we are not earnestly looking for the kingdom of God, we forget. And we forget, and when we forget, we can fall into pride. In Romans 6, 4, Paul tells us that we are buried with Christ. You know what? Let me read this for us. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. You see, our old selves were buried. Our old selves had died with Jesus. And when he, next week we'll talk about, when he was resurrected, we also were resurrected into the newness of life. But as you may know, our old selves, our sinful selves, it no longer has dominion, it no longer has control over us. We will no longer be condemned for our sinful selves. But our old selves, it very frequently resists to say buried. I'll say that again. Our old selves is buried with Christ, but it frequently resists to stay buried. Every day is a struggle for us. Every day in keeping our sinfulness from overflowing into our lives. If you're a parent, you know this firsthand. If you're married, you know this. If, you're, if you have parents, if you're a kid in this room, you know that it's so difficult to keep our sinfulness buried on a daily basis. And in one sense, if we forget that God has and will keep his promises, we take over the wheels of our lives. If we forget that Jesus is king over our lives, we put ourselves as a king in our lives. Now, I'm sure because in this room we're not complete heathens and that we are somewhat respectable Christians, there may be certain things that we do that are still, quote-unquote, Christian and, or Christ-like. But we are not off the hook. You see, those things are compromises. And in fact, in those ways, we are neither being hot or cold, but we are lukewarm. If you are like me, this is how it applies. We enjoy the benefits of the kingdom, just without a king, a kingdom without a king. We enjoy Jesus as our Savior as he died for me on the cross, but we refuse to believe him as our Lord. We enjoy the idea of our eternal lives in heaven, but sometimes we also create our present lives to be a, pre uh, to be a heaven as well. How else does it look like in our lives? We take comfort in coming to church, but there is no discomfort in seeing non-believing neighbors and friends blind to the gospel. We take comfort in identifying ourselves as Christian, but often we rarely have Christ in our Christianity. And this one here is particularly true of me. 
Some of us take comfort in knowing so much theology and the many truths about God, but rarely do we go and meet with him. You see, last week, Pastor Phil talked to us and mentioned the mortification of our sins or the daily killing of our sins because sin has a tendency to rise again. John Calvin speaks of this passage and mentions that burial expresses a continued process of mortification. You see, as Christians, yes, sin no longer has power to control us or condemn us as guilty, but if it is left unchecked, it can be very dangerous. To use and rephrase a famous quote by John Owen, for Christians, we must be burying sin or it will be burying us. Now, now this is that, there's always a part in the sermon where it's, it's heavy, a lot of convicting, a lot of sobering talk. And even now, how do we find comfort? How do we find comfort in a passage like this? For those of us who forget about the kingdom coming and we fall into despair, or for others of us who forget the kingdom and fall into pride, where is the comfort in this passage? Perhaps the, perhaps the comfort comes when we read this narrative simply at its face value. Perhaps the narrative isn't meant to be read in some cryptic way, but simply the narrative is included in the Bible because it actually happened. Perhaps it's not meant for us initially to feel comforted, but the gospel writers are just writing an historical, actual account of what actually happened. Commentators agree that it's very uncommon for Mark to use specific names. But he, here he uses Joseph, a specific name of a person, Arimathea, a specific place that he came from. He even uses specific names of the women that were there, not only at the death, at the burial, but later, next week we'll see also at the resurrection. Perhaps maybe this is just a historical, a historical account of what really happened. If it was meant to comfort us beyond simply because this is a historical narrative, why use, why use this kind of process of being specific in names? Last week, Pastor Phil mentioned that some believe that Jesus never died and Jesus never was buried and therefore Jesus was never resurrected. I think the Islamic faith believes that. But there are other, the other people who claim themselves to be Christian who don't find the importance of the historical, actual death of Jesus. In fact, what they say is this. It's not important that Jesus actually lived. It's not even that important if Jesus was actually God. And it's not important that Jesus actually died. What's important is this. You and I, if we're honest with ourselves, we're going to die and there's going to be nothing else. Now, if you hear that, you will fall into despair. Everyone will. There is no hope in that. But there are those who claim themselves to be Christians and say this is the important part of this story and the story of the Bible. 
The point is that when you hear this story, how does it make you feel? Is this a good enough idea to know that there could be, right, this imaginary figure who would love you so much to have died on the cross to make a feel-good story so that you won't have to face the despair of nothingness after death, but this feel-good story will at least carry you in this life to be blinding you so that at least you can go about your daily lives. There's no comfort in that. There's no comfort in a good idea. There's only comfort in a real thing. I know all the kids are gone, but I'm sure they would testify and agree with me. A child would not be satisfied by imaginative imaginary, amazing, the most amazing ice cream sundae. No child in this world would be satisfied by a good ice cream sundae. No, a a child is satisfied even if it is a scoop of the worst ice cream over an imagination. You see, Christians, we consider this story, and we, come, we remember this day as Good Friday. And it's good because of what Christ has accomplished for us. What Christ has done was brought the kingdom of God for us. It is his reign that makes it good, not necessarily his death. But you see, it's also good. It's also good because it's a real death, not an imaginary one. Or it's not imagination. It's not a make-believe death. It's a real death. So our comfort comes simply in that Jesus died a real death. And by doing so, he was able to, he was able to, we were able to receive a real salvation. And even though we go through the difficulties of life, what we long for and wait for is a real hope. The comfort of today's passage simply comes in that. And so as I close, I have two words of encouragement. First, for the Christian, if you do trust in Jesus as your Savior, if you do believe in Jesus' death and resurrection and what it has accomplished for you, my word of encouragement is this, is to be comforted despite your failings, despite your suffering, Despite your own disbelief or your doubts, be comforted because nothing changes the fact that God will fulfill his promises. In fact, his promises is not dependent on where you are in your faith. It is not dependent on your faithfulness, but God's promises is sure because God is faithful. In Hebrews chapter 6, 18, it tells us, that it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So for you, I do encourage you to look at this story, to see and long and wait for what Joseph is waiting for, because we have already received it. On this side of the cross, God, Jesus, is king and he does reign you may not see it 
In fact, what you see in your life may say the opposite. But trust in God's word. And if you are here and you do not believe or you do not consider yourself a Christian, everyone in here is very happy. We are so glad you are here. We are so glad that you are seeking, that you are looking for an answer. In fact, maybe you come here because you've turned to everywhere else and everywhere else have left, has left you with empty promises. And we are glad that you are here because here we encourage you to consider Jesus and consider his promises for you. Because it's only in him will you find what you were meant for, what you long for. And only in him will you find someone who was willing to be killed and buried so that you may have life and life to the fullest. Let's pray. Let's take some time to respond in our hearts what the Scripture, what the Word of God is saying to us today. Let's take some time to really consider our own hearts and where we are, where we have failed to trust in God's promises, where we have often, in a sense, left Jesus buried to have our own claims and to consider for our own selves what a newness of life looks like. Or perhaps for some of us, maybe we may consider how we have forgotten God's promises and we have fallen into despair. Whether it's in our families, relationships, at work, health, financial situations, whatever it may be, maybe we can come before the Lord in response to confess how we have forgotten Let us respond to the gospel of grace and the gospel message that encourages us, that encourages us that what Christ has done for us in his death, burial, and in his resurrection, we have a sure salvation. We have a sure hope in him. Let us go before our God at this time and give him thanksgiving, praise, and worship. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word once again. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to your people. We thank you, Lord, for your servant, Joseph, who in the history books, not only in the history books um, elsewhere, but even in this history book, may seem very insignificant to us. But Father, it is your faith to him and the love he had for his king that he was able to fulfill the promise so that your Holy One would not see corruption in the flesh. We thank you, Lord, for the faith that you have given to him so that he may see things that no eye, no human person can see. 
we thank you, Lord, for the same very faith that you have given to us. And even though there are days where we may see our faith to be so small, help us to be encouraged that it is not the size of our faith that carries us, but it is the object of our faith that will bring us home. May Jesus reign in our lives today and as we go forward. And in his name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.